Welcome to these Meditation and Philosophy Podcasts. I'm Al McGee. David Berman is a retired philosophy professor at Trinity College Dublin, and he's written that there's nothing more important than to work out what your absolute desire is and then to go in that direction. Well, this is a challenge to sort out what you care most about. So among your concerns, what tops the list? What, if anything, stands out? Do you have some ultimate concern, greatest desire, or highest wish? Or perhaps you'd rather not think in such stark terms. You'd rather not narrow things down like that. You'd perhaps prefer not to ground your life in some sort of absolute defining consideration, but instead hope to live your life in much broader terms, which I hope does not mean for you the loosey-goosey attitude of subscribing to being open to everything while believing nothing, a broad-mindedness that amounts to a sort of hazy, stoned-like state of mind floundering around in a relativistic fog, which in my estimate is precisely where you end up if you do not live your life in a resolutely focused way. Now, I call this living in the gray zone, or better, falling into the gray zone, for to end up in the gray zone is not the result of some great aspiration, but is rather the sorry outcome of failing to work out carefully what your absolute desire is. So that fall into colorlessness is the failure not to ground your life in relation to an ultimate absolute reference point. The fall into the emptiness of the gray zone is related, I think, to living a life that's not about anything in particular. And, you know, that's the nature of an empty life, that it's but a mishmash of odds and ends of all kinds of desires, none of which are high enough, strong enough, or commanding enough to put you together into a state of coherence and integrity. Now, the Upanishads are instructive here on the necessity of manning up to choose between lower desires and higher ones. Nashikata, a young seeker, is told by his teacher, Nashikata, as a human being, you have been born with the capacity to make choices. The guru is saying to the young lad that his dignity as a human being is his inborn ability to discriminate between lower and higher desires. No other creature has this capacity, and no human being can avoid this responsibility. And so at every moment, he says to Nishikata, you have a choice of two alternatives in what you do, what you say, and what you think. You get to choose, in other words, between what's called the pleasant way or the beneficial way. That is, you can go low or you can aim high. You can give in to momentary satisfactions, or you can choose to focus all of your mind, heart, and soul upon that which endures. In dietary terms, you can get fat and sluggish, or aim to be slim and fit. An experiment on mice makes the point. One group of mice were given simple food and a wheel to run on. They lived a simple, Spartan-like mice existence. The other group of mice were given lots of variety. There was a mouse playground with food and mirrors and other mouse buddies and tubes and materials for nesting fun. Well, the test results were revelatory. The test results indicated that the unfocused mice became, over time, more and more vulnerable to Alzheimer's. In contrast, the focused Spartan mice warriors, in their simple environment, were better able to ward off disease. Which reinforces the point I'm making that a single-minded focus and discipline is of inestimable value in every way. 
in the same way a successful marriage is the result of that absolute commitment of to you alone forsaking all others. What's required, therefore, if we're to live well, is to put into action exactly what the Irish philosopher has emphasized, which is, I repeat, to find out what your absolute desire is, and then to act resolutely in accordance with it. Otherwise, a fall into the gray zone is inevitable. As in the case of the philosopher David Hume, who missed, I think, his own life's greatest possibility, as he himself admitted late in life, when he expressed that his own absolute desire had been to aspire no higher than to hope for mere worldly recognition. Thus, in his final year, Hume wrote about, quote, my love of literary fame, my ruling passion. Now, George Barclay is a marked contrast to David Hume and chose to emphasize something much different. Barclay's own absolute desire was to attain truth, and he describes this search for truth as a feverish expectancy. That absolute desire for truth still burned within him as an old man. In his memoir, for instance, he references Plato's allegory of getting out of the cave of ignorance to ascend into the realm of truth. So these two philosophers exhibited entirely different tones. Hume presents himself as a content man, urban and polite. Berkeley, in contrast, is feverish in his search for truth. Now, the long-term effect of Hume's so-called self-contentment, as Berman points out, has been instrumental in leading the way towards what Berman calls that orientation of mind where truth has ceased to be the cry of all. That was Hume's long-term effect as the father of skepticism. Barclay's long, long-term effect, in contrast, has been to, and I quote Berman again, his effect has been to keep the cry for truth alive. Now, when it comes to giving expression to my own absolute desire, I'd say that my absolute desire has to do with the aspiration I have always felt for a certain quality of relationship. I have somehow all my life been searching for that quality of relationship that is on fire with a shared yearning for transcendence. It is to share in common with another the longing, the yearning to establish contact with a divine reference point at the heart of things as I've expressed elsewhere, through the image of a triangle. If you think of the triangle at the base of it, on either side are two persons who've come together because of matching interests and concerns. But my question always is, how high and how deep will you go together in that relationship? Is the effect of your friendship a joint movement towards the triangle's peak, which is understood to be the highest, the absolute, God, or not? The Upanishads reinforce my point by emphasizing that what is dear about any relationship is whether it creates and inspires a mutual elevation towards the highest point of the triangle. Thus, in the terms of the Upanishads, no relationship exists merely for its own sake, but for the sake of the self, that is, for the sake of the higher, for the absolute, for God. No relationship, in other words, is only about the here and now, but is going it's about going beyond itself into transcendent dimensions. So, quoting from the Upanishads, a wife loves her husband, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the self. And a husband loves his wife, not for her sake, but for the sake of the self. Parents love their children, not for the sake of the children, but for the sake of the self. People love wealth, not for its own sake, but for the sake of the self. 
thinkers and teachers are loved not for their own sake, but for the sake of the self. Warriors and kings are loved not for their own sake, but for the sake of the self. The gods, the worlds, the beings in the world, and everything else, they are not loved for their own sake, but for the sake of the self. Indeed, you must, the Upanishads declare, you must realize the self, hear it, reflect upon it, and meditate upon it. So the point of a relationship, the point of a friendship, is always to go beyond what it is to what it could be. Its point is to affirm eternal dimensions as over against merely temporal ones. Now, since my own absolute desire is for this kind of spiritual relationship, my question then becomes, well, what philosophies support this quest? Well, the Irish philosopher states broadly that we've got a choice between two schools of thinking. The first of these is that school of thinkers who associate themselves with the family of Plato, the other with the Buddha. Well, it's been clear to me since I began to read Plato as a teenager that Platonism supports my absolute desire for relationship with the divine because it affirms the possibility of personal deification. Platonism affirms, in other words, personal transcendence. For the Buddhists, however, this absolute desire is for absolute nothingness. Two entirely different stances. So the Buddhist approach is about overcoming individuality and personality. It's actually the goal of Buddhist practice to blot out your hopes and desires, to blot them out entirely. All personal striving is to be abandoned in order to attain a condition of impersonal being or nothingness. And so, from its point of view, the individual self is ephemeral. Your individual self is an illusion. Your individual self is a fiction. Your individual self is regarded as only an appearance of the one only being. So in these terms, your absolute desire is to lose any sense of a personal self and to identify instead with Brahman or the nothingness of nirvana, the attraction to which is hard to comprehend. And yet this is exactly what the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer decided to focus upon. As he lay dying, he declared that his absolute desire was to attain absolute nothingness which is why I suppose he's regarded as one of the most pessimistic philosophers who ever lived and whose writings, therefore, will never be put under the Christmas tree for my granddaughters to read for inspiration. But as soon as those girls are old enough, I can hardly wait to read Plato to them, for the platonic understanding is that the self is indivisible. The person is an individual person or substance among other similar beings. Plato is affirming personal destiny. It's affirming that this life is not all there is, but is a journey, a personal journey, towards the eternal. And so it's clear that these two positions, the Platonic one and the Buddhist one, are radically opposed. And while my conviction is that no synthesis is possible between such diametrically opposed positions, you cannot merge these two things together, merge them together, for if you do, all you'll have is some mushy, meaningless middle and an insufficient ground, therefore, upon which to build a meaningful and purposeful life. So it's no wonder, then, that the New Testament is affirming of this platonic emphasis on personal destiny, as it repeatedly emphasizes in the pages of the New Testament that when the light shone on anyone, that its effect was to transfigure, not to blot out. The New Testament accent is not 
upon blotting out your desires, extinguishing your desires, but actually to heighten the level of your desire to the point that your absolute desire is to dwell forever in union with God. And thus the effect of Christ's presence was to bring a man to his senses, to bring him to himself. You could say to bring him to true desire. The impact of Christ is to establish you in your own distinct and personal identity. A man so inspired is absolutely bursting with holy desire, with a longing so great that nothing else can compare to it. So in Platonic Christian terms, our life journey is not towards dissolution or nothingness or a collapse into the void, but a movement towards transfiguration and glorification. Well, this view, the New Testament one, is an absolute contrast to any philosophy that diminishes the self by referencing it as only a mere reflection or shadow or condensation of the divine or a minor aspect of God's existence. My own absolute desire in fully Christian terms is to live eternally in the presence of that one, Jesus Christ, my Lord, who loved me and gave himself for me.